The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the hosts and guests and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of New York Presbyterian Hospital or Columbia University Irving Medical Center. You're listening to Taking It to Heart with the Columbia Valve Team, a podcast where we discuss the advancements in treatments for patients with structural heart and valve disease. I'm your host, Dr. Isaac George. All right, welcome to another edition of Taking It to Heart with the Columbia Heart Valve Team. My name is Isaac George, and we're going to be talking about a, a really exciting topic here, and it's already generated a lot of um, arguments and, uh, and talking pre, pre-recording. Um, the topic today is the new procedural requirements uh, that the NCD has now agreed to uh, for TAVR programs and TAVR operators. The proposed decision was, was recently approved, uh, and... I'm going to go through the main highlights of this proposal, and then we're going to have some open discussion about what we think. So TAVR uh, must be furnished in a hospital with the appropriate infrastructure that has both on-site heart surgery and interventional cardiology programs. The qualifications to begin a TAVR program without TAVR experience include greater than 50 open heart surgeries in the prior year, uh, greater than 20 aortic valve interventions in the two years prior, and two physicians that do cardiac surgery, one physician that does interventional cardiology, and greater than 300 PCIs per year. In the individual uh, physicians must include a cardiovascular surgeon that, uh, that has a, a greater ex- an experience of greater than 100 open heart surgeries, of which 25 are aortic valve related, and an interventional cardiologist with greater than 100 structural heart procedures uh, or 30 left-sided structural procedures a year. Um, the programs with TAVR experience should have uh, greater than 50 AVRs, whether they're TAVR or SAVR, per year. That include, again, greater than 20 TAVR procedures in the prior year, and as well as greater than 100 AVRs, either TAVR or SAVR, every two years, and an average of uh, 40 TAVRs in the two prior years. Um, 300 PCIs per year, two cardiovascular surgeons, one physician that does interventional cardiology. Um, I'd like to open up the discussion. You know, these are, these are very important documents. The, the intent of these proposals are to provide uniform or at least expanded care to patients who have aortic valve stenosis. How does this change what we're doing in the era now where we have high volume operators, expert expertise and techniques that are now advanced to, to get numbers that are truly spectacular in the realm of TAVR, treating patients with a mortality of 1% or less, stroke of 1% or less. How do we play in where we now expand this therapy to another 250 sites and we have a bar of just doing 20 TAVRs a year, right? We're at a center where we do 20 TAVRs in a week sometimes, you know, potentially, and you're talking about doing this, you know, maybe once a month at places. So, Sushil, we have Val Fellows here. How many TAVRs do you want them to do before you can let them be first or second operator in a TAVR procedure? I mean, I think, before we get to that, I want to go back to the point. Sure, there's the ideal world, right? We all want to be treated by someone that does 
as many tavers as possible or as many whatever procedures as possible. You know, you can, you can apply this to anything, right? Someone that, that drives every day for a living is probably a better driver. Uh, a, but we don't restrict, uh, you know, somebody that drives once a month, uh, you know, there's these cr crazy drivers in Manhattan we re we that rent a car drivers. like Isaac who, uh, you know, but we maybe drives. drivers, people one, who can't see, people no, who. Yeah, but you, people that drive a car once, once every three months, maybe they shouldn't be on the road because they don't have enough experience to drive. But at the same time, there are drivers that drive infrequently that are great. There are drivers that can, can you, you can process things, right? I, I agree that there are volume outcome relationships, but at the same time, we need to provide access to care. And, and listen, I'm, I'm conflicted by this, right? On, on, on one side, we want, we want that, right? Because we want the best, we want the person with the most experience that's seen the most complications because th they can handle them. And the complications with TAVR are, are rare, but when they do occur, they, 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 you know, an experienced center is going to be better able to handle them. But at the same time, if, you know, we want to make sure that patients, the conflicting side is patients need to have access to a therapy. You know, we had this discussion before we started recording, right? Because a patient goes to one center, you know, so there's center A and center B. Center A does both tavern surgery, center B just does surgery. The 85-year-old that goes to center B shouldn't have uh, miss out on having access to a therapy that in low risk trials has shown superiority to surgery and we can we can discuss that but you know th they should have both options presented to them and because one center doesn't have that therapy they may not present the option so that's access to care so you you could argue the other side that we're killing more patients by not expanding the therapy because they're not having access to the therapy and they're having surgery which had worse outcomes compared to TAVR in a low risk population so you know, you can spin this any any different way. And I think the fundamental thing is TAVR has been rolled out in a controlled manner, much more so than many other therapies through the TVT registry. We've documented outcomes. We've documented risk. So I think you, I, what I would argue is as we expand the therapy, we need to monitor it closely, right? So if, if there's there's a shift in outcomes, and, we're, and because we have the TVT registry and we're getting you know, outcomes data in terms of mortality, at least, that, that's very reliable. We can monitor who's, you know, what are, if the outcomes are suddenly in low-risk patients doubling in terms of mortality, then, then, then reassess. Or if there are centers that have higher mortality, we should be able to, to do it. But I think we've, the dispersion of knowledge and, uh, and dispersion of TAVR has been very controlled and regulated, that the outcomes really haven't become you know, it wasn't crazy. Everyone was worried when we started TAVR in 2011 that we were going to start killing everyone because of such a complex procedure. And that's why we had this controlled distribution. And I think the TVT data has sort of shown that it's, it's done it reasonably well. Is it perfect? No. Is there a volume outcome relationship? No. But that's part of part. Uh, yeah, I'm sorry. Yes, Becky's, you're right. I'm sorry. I meant to say yes. Uh, she's, Becky's about to strangle me here. But it, there is, but it's it's a balance and i think you know you could argue this I, i'll ask isaac and Vinny, you know why haven't we done this on the surgical side you know the mean number of avrs i remember when marty gave talks four or five years ago he always said mean number of avrs for a surgeon is eight is that is that enough for a annual relationship for someone to make outcomes no but the um, avr has been done for like 60 years uh, that was a new technology so you can't uh, i think the experience you get is different no, but let me just add to this. I think the part of this is the technology has become more reliable. The yes. learning curve in tower field probably is the only field where complications have been discussed openly, 
a complication. Learning has happened throughout it. So today, the TAVR has become relatively standard procedure. Now, the main question is, how stringent the VAL teams are going to be in these centers? Because what we are forgetting, we are focusing on total number of TAVRs done by a center. However, in Colombia, say we do 500 TAVR patients, but we see 800 referrals. There are patients which we say surgery is better. There are patients where we take precautions for, say, coronary obstruction. Uh, there are patients where we try and define different kinds of treatment. There are patients who are referred for aortic stenosis. We find they don't have aortic stenosis. They have something else going on, like recently we discovered amyloid, for example. So I think this level of maturity has to come in in these centers, and maybe we need to some we have some rules where straightforward cases are done by these centers, but more complex cases are referred to a tertiary center. I, I think that I is the, the, the best balance, I think, in, in this but, dilemma. But this has been the difficulty of defining quality in TAVR. You know, is it a successful outcome? Is it getting the patient out of the room? Is it 30-day stroke or mortality? Is it longer-term uh, performance of the valve? You know, those are all questions that relate to how well a center does the procedure, how well they assess, they evaluate what should be done, whether it's surgery or TAVR. Um, just to, to go back to the other comments, the volume relationship isn't quite as strong as we all think. Just looking back at our, our papers here, the last New England Journal TVT article is that if you take out the first 12 months, the difference between the highest level volume and the lowest quartile volume, which again was 27 versus 143 cases, the difference in, in uh, mortality was 3.1% versus 2.6%. So you could argue that that relationship really is not, you know, it becomes a lot less strong, and you could have those variations within one city, within New York City, right? But is it because of the complexity? Uh, because in England, for example, which is relatively 40 centers doing tower, it was seen that the numbers of tower per center <clears throat> where from 70 per year to, say, 300 per year, only four centers doing more than 200. The outcomes in the centers which were doing 70 per year was better because these patients were more sure. precious for them. They right. were more uh, thoroughly looked after. And maybe the high-risk patients were sent to tertiary. So I think we don't have a score which assesses that, like which patient is high-risk. And the other thing is, say, uh, like, Bigger centers have access to newer devices, which may be specifically good for certain things, like maybe coronary obstruction or heavily calcified valve. We have some devices where PV leak is less. So I think this needs a more discussion. I think uh, going forward. And there's a, a you know an international um, uh, manuscript by uh, WhatsApp that uh, looked at 16 centers in the international tower registry that showed very strong volume outcomes relationship as well. So low annual volume was considered less than 50 TAVRs per institution. And their 30-day mortality odds ratio compared to those sites that had more than that, so uh, either uh, inter uh, intermediate or moderate uh, volume of 50 to 100 versus high volume was 2.7. 2.7 odds ratio of, of, of killing a patient within 30 days if your volume was less than 50. 
So, I mean, I think there are strong outcomes. No, I, I, no but I don't think it, I don't think anyone, I mean, except for my misstatement earlier, but I don't think anyone uh, disagrees that there are volume outcome relationships. But what is reasonable and rational, right? I mean, we would obviously like a model where, you know, everything comes to certain centers. And I think more, more of that is employed in, in Europe than it is in the U.S., but it's a more dispersed population. Um, what is the burden to the patient to travel and the family to travel to get access to a therapy? Um, and what is the trade-offs we're willing to accept for that, right? We, we're talking about TAVR, but we accept it in medicine. I mean, the quality of care is going to be different across hospitals so, because that's just, that's just the reality. So what, what trade-offs are acceptable, I think, is the question. And I think the, the, pro, the challenge here is all of us, you know, we all, for our family members, would want to go to an experience center, and none of us are disagreeing with that, right? I think we all fundamentally agree. If my dad needed a tavern, I'm not going to go to a center that does 20 a year. Um, but at the same time, you know, if a person has to drive two hours to get to a high-volume center or three hours to a high-volume center, is that burden too much? And and as Vinny said, as Tavra becomes so much more reliable and the devices have become much lower risk, that will take some degree of a trade-off. And what's and we may all have a different threshold of what we find as an acceptable trade-off. Um, but it's access to care. And you know, Vinny said, "Don't talk about surgery," but I have to. Uh, he's uh, but. Uh, you know, we haven't done that on the surgery side, Isaac, right? Well, I mean, well what, one what, of the problems the is, Sushil, we don't have a certification for TAVR, right? We have certification for surgery. We have a board process where you yeah. do seven right. years right. of yeah. surgery, yeah. 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 and then we have a formal process where you have not only a written, we have an oral exam, and we have everyone go in, and we have a 10% fail rate for, right. for this process. So you get certified to do cardiac surgery, adult cardiac surgery, now, and so when you come out of that, you have a certification to perform cardiac surgery in the same way that you can deliver babies, in the same way that you can do neurosurgery. So we don't have that for TAVR. So that's where the accreditation yeah, an and the regulation no, yeah. I, I, is different. Without a doubt, yeah. I agree with you. And I think people are moving towards that, and we have to do that. Right. That, have that's absolutely. We have to have, have, to have, have some sort of certification, yeah. minimum threshold for, for the proceduralist, right? And, and that should be surgeon and interventionalist. There has to be the same yeah, certification and, and process. And guys, you should guys, you know, so just listen, we're gonna, we're gonna have a whole topic on training and that's gonna be a great session because whenever we talk about training, everyone starts erupting and arguing. So we're gonna do that in one of our next sessions. But the one question before we finish up, and I know we have maybe just a few more minutes, I wanted to ask about the PCI requirement and I want to ask about the imaging requirement because there's such a huge difference in doing a TAVR in a center that has good imaging versus no imaging experience. So whoever wants to start. I, I got the PCI requirement uh, is on the institutional level 300 per year. Um, you know, again, how relevant is it? Catheter skills are relevant. Um, you know, I, I, I think... I think that's. I don't know that it makes that much of a difference. I think a center that does 300 to 400 PCIs, I, what, they change the requirement from 400 to 300. I don't think that's dramatic in terms of the skill set. It adds more. It, it opens up more institutions uh, that have access to the therapy. Uh, but from a procedural or hospital standpoint, I don't think the 400 to 300 really changes someone from a high volume center and ex much more experienced center to a much less experienced. Do we need individual operator experience requirements? 
for we do for tavern. For tavern we do, but they're, they're but as you mentioned in the beginning, they're they're much lower now, right? It's it's a hundred structural procedures per year. I mean, per over a lifetime. For program. For, for a program. A program. Yeah. Yeah. But you could have multiple people doing multiple yeah. multiple procedures. So Becky, what about imaging? Well, I think you know this this document on TAVR is really underemphasized imaging, and and in some ways it's justified. I mean, as Vinny said, it's become a mature procedure, right? So this is a procedure that initially we did under transesophageal guidance, always. I mean, we did not deviate from that. And then as the the procedures matured and become more consistent, and um, uh, you know, and obviously with operator experience, I think we moved away from having to do, you know. GA and TEE to conscious sedation and transthoracic, but I don't. I do think that you know the document does not does not at all emphasize the the heart team, uh, including the imager and the um, you know and, and all of our uh, staff um, that are part of the heart team, um, our nurse practitioners, our PAs, and it do, it doesn't you know go into the building of that team and the and the team experience, the kind of group. Uh, mentality uh, that requires to to develop one of these programs and I think that that that's a huge mistake you know um, I mean we still have an imager board certified echocardiographer in every procedure we don't even leave the room um, where I know that there are sites where the echocardiographer is on call down the hall or maybe not even called in at all and um, you know I think that that those are the types of shortcuts that are being uh, taken um, that may, in the end, uh, you know, result in greater PV leak and uh, other complications uh, uh, that that possibly may lead to increased mortality. So this becomes very relevant once the risk profile of the patients we are treating is going to go down. So, for example, say a low-risk patient today, uh, whatever said and done in the trials can still have. Uh, surgically, we are under GA, open the sternum, and do all the heart-lung machine thing, and still wake up after four hours, etc. So, if we are going to do TAVRs in these patients, we should do them with all the necessity and care. Now, that's where I differ a bit in terms of should we use actually general anesthesia TE guidance in these patients? Maybe we should because these patients, their mortality, morbidity is not going to be affected by GA. So we should try and get the optimal result. And I think Columbia experience has already shown that giving general anesthesia necessarily doesn't prolong hospital stay, etc. So we have to start thinking a bit more laterally, I think. And this is the way. But, but Vinny, if you, that may be true, but if you don't have uh, imagers that have done you know, 500 cases and you put someone to sleep and do a TEE, it doesn't really add th that, that much to the case if you're not really looking at the data. Um, but you guys didn't, it's like in the democratic debates where questions are being asked and you guys aren't <laughs> answering. What is the volume outcome relationship? I'm going to be like Bill de Blasio on that debate and keep asking. What is the volume outcome relationship in surgery? And, and why, have, why is the surgical community not up in arms that, uh, you know, surgeons, yeah you, yeah, you can say there's a certification process. But uh, someone that trained 20 years ago that for the last 20 years has done 5 to 10 AVRs per year, do you think that they're going to get as good a result as someone that does a lot, and why aren't suddenly every, why isn't everyone up in arms about that? I, mean, so, uh, I don't understand why the surgical AVR questions being inserted here because the surgical, <laughs> to be very honest, uh, you know, the first question it was asked: This is TVT first first TVT 
there was a dinner and question was asked, what is the experience an interventionist should have to do a TAVR? And what is the experience a surgeon should have to get involved in TAVR? And the question is zero because interventionists had no experience in TAVR at that time. So these standards are being applied conveniently every decade they are going to change. The question <coughs> is here that if the complication rate is low, then when the complication happens, what the approach of the team is going to be? Like, is that surgeon, you know, can jump in or are they going to give up and say, hey, you know what, this is one complication in 200 no, root rupture. So, I don't disagree with it. My, my point uh, is that there's going to be a volume outcome relationship. But that's what is the everything in medicine. Everything in medicine. Everything in medicine. But so, so why we are we, are, we, have to, we have to say that we can't only be at centers that do 300 a year. That's less than 50 centers, right? There, there's going to be a volume outcome. And I guess the question that we're all asking is, what is that threshold, right? What is the lifetime? But is it the experience of the individual? Or should we say, what is the experience of the team there, right? What if a someone that did a structural heart fellowship here, our structural fellows do maybe 150 Tavers as primary operator. They go to a program. I would argue that fellow going to a program has more experience and will get better outcomes than many centers. Right? Even if that center does 20 a year, he, he coming out of here probably has more, more experience. He or right. she. she. Sorry. He or she. He or Sorry. She. My bad. Yeah. 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 But the uh, question is, he or she can still have complications, and does the rest of the team either identify that before the patient's put on table or you know, salvage the patient once it's on table? I think that's why I'm saying that these insecurities of bigger, I think a lot of this debate is because of insecurities of big centers that they're going to lose business. Now what we are forgetting is we are getting involved in other structural procedures. And there's going to be a huge burden because the tower numbers are going to only increase. Do we have resources for all these big centers to do all these big numbers? Probably not. And I think dissemination of technology, like left main, I should ask you actually this question, the more pertinent question is not surgically, we are in left main. How many centers do left main? Are there centers in this country doing left main PCI where cardiac surgery doesn't exist? Maybe that's unsafe as well. Yeah. So right, so I mean, so, you know, you can, you can, so to answer your question, because Vinny is running, running for president and clearly avoided it. <laughs> but you're, you're right, Sashil. There are a lot of things that we do procedurally in medicine that we don't accurately you know, measure outcomes for, quality for. And cardiac surgery is one of them in certain places. We do in New York, New York State. State. We yeah. do in, in, in Massachusetts or in certain areas where there's public reporting. And so I think we have a good handle on that in some places. But in other states where there's low volumes or low regions, um, I, I agree. I think there's a problem with how we how we do that, um, and we have to do better with that. But then, but, then, I don't think but a that's a separate. But I don't think it's a problem because my, my my point is mortality of, of aortic stenosis is no. Even if you argue the difference of I don't know the numbers for cardiac surgery, but say high volume set to that. I'm sure it is. There, I'm two, sure there is. But say it's two percent versus four percent mortality. I don't know what it is, right? I'm just saying putting out numbers. Even if it's double. That 2% increase is still a lot less than that patient not getting treated for aortic stenosis. Sure. And it's about yeah. access to a therapy. So I'd rather have still have yeah. a person go to a low-volume surgeon in middle no. of nowhere in a community hospital yeah. and get treated because that mortality is still better if they get treated than if they, they don't. Yeah, and that's, that's my only point, right? We accept those trade-offs because right. and we're not arguing that. I think we need to... 
we need to talk about it and we need to educate the entire community, but we can't say these people can't do it because they're not good enough and we can't put down other centers and we can't do all of that because no. so, we have to just so, I mean, what But you the said problem before. here is that th actually the trend in medicine, I think, is the opposite t to some extent, is which is more regionalization because we know what happens when you don't have these volume outcome relationship requirements. Look at pediatric cardiac surgery. We're having this revolution right now nationally where we've had small, low-volume sites having major complications that have been kind of covered up uh, or not recognized, and then they become national scandals, let's say, because it comes out that their outcomes are really bad. And now the trend is to say, all right, look, we're going to go back and say these complex cases have to be done at bigger centers, and that's the right thing for these little kids. So... You know what's the what's the the minimum distance that a little kid needs to travel to get a Norwood or to get a Taver? But that's you know, that's different. Maybe that's I mean, a, 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 I don't even know what a Norwood is. So it's been so long since I did training, so I won't say it. But uh, but you know that, that's got to be a different level of skill than what we're talking about here. Because no, we have to be within but, reason. But to right. say again, so here I think the main question is, can we differentiate? Like pediatric, actually, that's a great example. So. Complex, simple pediatric cases, complex cases. Same, I, I suppose, like CTOs are not done everywhere. Is there, a, is there a simple pediatric cardiac case? Yes, ASD is very simple. <laughs> um, but I think has a point come where there should be something where straightforward tower cases and complex cases. For example, wall in wall probably should be done in centers which have got experience in it. Like, can we slowly define uh, for example, when new devices come, they don't go to every center. They go to specific centers. So there's always some differentiation. Maybe that's something the guidelines should cover to make sure that they, there's no loopholes and the patients are not put at risk. Right. Because we also discussed that our, that paper uh, that looked at different uh, tier centers, right? Uh, right. That where people with certain experience can, should do certain types of procedures, but how you how you implement that in a nationwide fashion is, is complex. But I, I, I do well, have to say that one of your comments is pretty relevant as well, which is that the rollout has been slow and controlled, and the education has been phenomenal, right? So that there's a big effort to have all of our institutional knowledge actually be disseminated so that people don't make the silly mistakes, uh, you know, or even not silly, but I mean the mistakes that we've made. Um, and so I do think that it is a little different um, be because that dissemination has been slow and because the education has been so aggressive. Absolutely. All right, we're going to wrap up. Thank you all for listening. We'll see you next time. Thanks, Isaac. Thank you. Thank you, Isaac.